This evening, I'd like to uh, start a discussion of uh, two very basic uh, types of phenomenon that are discussed in uh, the four tenant systems and go through a survey of how each of the uh, tenant systems uh, treated. Uh, this fits in, I think, uh, quite well with uh, understanding how is it that we actually uh, are able to cognize or know a person, ourselves, or uh, other people. And these two variables are called uh, self-sufficiently knowable objects or phenomenon and imputedly knowable objects or phenomenon. First, the definitions. It's always important to know the definitions. A self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent phenomenon so we're talking about a phenomenon that is both self-sufficiently knowable and substantially existent. Although actually, I should have said that the other way around. Among substantially existent phenomena, those that are self-sufficiently knowable. And these are validly knowable, substantially established phenomena that, when they're actually cognized, do not rely on actual cognition of something else which means reliance on cognizing something else immediately prior to actual cognition of them. In other words, to know them, you need to rely on knowing something else, something that they rely on first. Um, there are a number of technical terms in that uh, definition. So first, actual cognition. Actual cognition can be either with uh, explicit apprehension or implicit apprehension of an object in a manifest cognition. How's that? There's three technical terms in that statement. So each of them have to be uh, defined. So apprehension means that uh, something is known both decisively and accurately. Right? So that is uh, very, very basic to be able to apprehend. It's the same word as to understand. To understand something, you have to know it accurately and decisively. And it can be either explicitly apprehended or implicitly apprehended. Explicit means that a hologram of it actually appears in the cognition, and implicit is that the there is no hologram that appears. So if we uh, look inside the uh, refrigerator, the inside of the refrigerator appears, it's explicitly apprehended, but uh, no milk inside the refrigerator doesn't appear. But uh, we know uh, that there is no milk in the refrigerator, so that's implicitly uh, apprehended. And in a manifest cognition, manifest means that uh, the mental hologram that arises appears to both the cognition of the manifest cognition uh, to the consciousness, I'm sorry, of the manifest cognition and to the person cognizing it. You know, there's uh, manifest cognition and subliminal cognition. Manifest is, uh, it appears to the consciousness and the person also. The, you know, because you'd have to say that, you know, as a person, the per person knows things, person sees things and so on. But when it's subliminal, like when we're asleep, the sound of the uh, clock ticking appears to the consciousness, the audio consciousness, but not to the person, so we're not aware 
of the clock ticking. But uh, if it gets loud enough, let's say the alarm goes off, then we hear it as well as, you know, the consciousness is aware of it. Otherwise, if that weren't the case, um, how would you ever hear the alarm clock? It sounds very dualistic put like that. Dualistic in what sense? Well, things are made of parts. I mean, the consciousness is also made of parts, but it sounds like we are not hearing it, only the audio consciousness. Well, the it's audio consciousness. From the point of view of Sautrantika, Chittamatra and Svatantrika, the, uh, according to Sautrantika and Svatantrika, mental consciousness uh, has the defining characteristic on its side, findable, of both the consciousness and the person. And according to Chittamatra, it's the foundation consciousness that has that, of the defining characteristic of both the consciousness and the person. You know, the question is, where is the defining characteristic found of these things? So they assert that uh, defining characteristic, individual defining characteristic marks are found on the side of the object. They establish the existence of the object. And where is the, that found for the, for the person? Well, if you have a person, there has to be a consciousness. A person is defined as a sentient being. A sentient being is literally something possessing a mind, a limited mind. Buddha is not a sentient being. So if there's a person, there is mental activity. If there's mental activity, there's a person. Otherwise, it's a dead body. So therefore, both the consciousness and the person, from the point of view of the defining characteristic of the consciousness, the mental consciousness, cognizes things. So the question is, to whom, do, to what does it actually, the mental hologram actually appear? The consciousness generates the um, mental hologram, causes the mental hologram to arise. But unlike mental factors, the person, as a non-congruent affecting variable, doesn't share five things in common with the consciousness, which means that the person does not give rise to the mental hologram. The other things are there, I mean, most of them, you know, simultaneous and so on. Mm -hmm. So that mental hologram is being, you know, is uh, arisen by the uh, consciousness. So then which one is aware of it, you know, from the point of view of consciousness, you would say that uh, the consciousness is aware, but, you know, looking at the uh, mental consciousness from the point of view of the person, the person is not aware. It doesn't appear to the person, is what you say. Is it dualistic? Certainly from a prasangika point of view. It is from the point of view of the other tenet systems. Not really. You see, the problem is uh, um, that prasangika always faces is uh, always uh, uh, brings up is the uh, you know the basis for imputation is the uh, mental consciousness, and then you have what is imputed on it, which is the uh, person or consciousness. 
you know, in terms of, let's say, each moment of uh, mental consciousness. So if you have the defining characteristic findable on the side of the basis, then what is being imputed and the basis for impu imputation are the same. And if they are totally separate, then you know there's no relationship uh, between the two. And so on this basis, uh, Prasangika refutes this whole idea that a defining characteristic of what is being imputed is findable on the basis of imputation. Did you follow that? It's a little bit complicated. Halfway through. Halfway through. Mm -hmm. Can you repeat it? Did you follow it? Mm -hmm. If you have something being imputed, let's say the... Uh, you did it for itself now. Yeah. This is a self. So, you have the person, right? And then you have the uh, uh, mental consciousness, if we do the... Santrantika uh, and Svatantrika position. Now, where do you have the uh, defining characteristic? person is being imputed on the mental consciousness. So where is the defining characteristic of the uh, person and the defining characteristic of mental consciousness? And uh, according to these non-prasangika systems, the uh, defining characteristic of both of them, let's call it uh, X and Y, are found here on the side of mental consciousness. So if they are both found, if the defining characteristic of person and the defining characteristic of mental consciousness are both found on the side of mental consciousness, then Prasangika would say, well, the two of them are identical. So they're one. So that doesn't make any sense. And if you say that, well, only the mental, the defining characteristic of mental consciousness is found on the side of mental consciousness, and the defining characteristic of person is found on the side of person, then what's the relationship between the two? They can't actually be related. So, because it would be like two ping pong balls that are uh, separate. So, the only <coughs> solution that Prasangika says is that the defining characteristics of both of these are not found on the side of either what's being imputed or the side of the basis but they are exclusively established through mental, lab you know, mental labeling by a conceptual mind. Nevertheless, there are individual defining characteristics of a person and of mental consciousness, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to distinguish one person from another person, or mental consciousness from visual consciousness. But the defining characteristic doesn't, it's not findable, and it doesn't have the power either by itself or in conjunction with mental labeling, which is the Svetantrika position, to establish the existence of something. Is that clear? I mean, that's a very central thing in the whole Prasangika issue. That is the Prasangika issue. Is there something on the side? of the basis for imputation 
findable, you know, is what is being imputed, the, the defining characteristic findable on the side of the basis. What's the relationship between what is being imputed and the basis for imputation? You follow that? Good. So, in uh, actual cognition, so it could be either explicit or implicit, accurate, decisive, known, manifest to both the person and the uh, consciousness, self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent phenomena. It's substantially existent. Remember what that means? That means, according to these schools, that is uh, produces an effect, able to produce, perform a function, produce an effect, so non-static phenomenon. And they are uh, the natal source of at least, you know, either the cognition of them in terms of Satrantika or Svatantrika, or the natal source of uh, the karmic results, you know, that, uh, or the results that it uh, makes, not necessarily karmic. And they are established by something on their own side. This is why Prasangika refutes that there's such a thing as substantially established existence. There is nothing substantially established according to Prasangika. But everybody else accepts that, because everybody else accepts that there's something on the side of an object that establishes its existence, whether it's a so-called self-establishing nature, or its essential nature, uh, or its defining characteristic mark, something on the side of the object establishes its existence. And they usually say it's all of those. Individual defining characteristic mark is what uh, distinguishing, the mental factor of distinguishing, focuses on to be able to differentiate one thing from another thing. And essential nature is what it basically is. It establishes its conventional nature of what it is. Actually, Tsongkhapa said there's two essential natures, what establishes its conventional, what it is, and what establishes that it, uh, uh, how it exists, you know, its voidness. It's because of that differentiation that Tsongkhapa makes in Mamram Chemo that he can say, Cognition of the conventional essential nature can be accurate or inaccurate, while cognition of the deepest essential nature is, is wrong, is deceptive. And in the, non, in the schools that he was uh, critiquing, they didn't make a differentiation between that. They said that if uh, cognition of the deepest essential nature, in other words, it's you know, how it exists is, is deceptive or wrong, then cognition of the conventional nature is together with that, so the whole cognition is wrong. So those are the essential natures. So that's something findable on the side of the object, either the essential nature or the individual defining characteristic mark that has the power either by itself or in conjunction with mental labeling, Svatantrika position, to establish its existence. And the fact that it is a substantial entity, they say as well, able to perform a function, also establishes its existence, but that's only for non-static phenomenon, not for static ones. It's only the Vibhashikas that say that uh, it's for both. 
Okay? Do you need a pause to digest that? Fine. Then, imputedly knowable phenomenon are those validly knowable phenomenon that, when actually cognized, do rely on actual cognition of something else, meaning something else immediately prior to them. So if it's substantially established, self-sufficiently knowable, does not require cognition of something before it, basically it's basis for imputation before it, whereas uh, imputedly knowable does require uh, that. And imputedly knowable phenomenon may include both substantially established phenomenon as well as phenomenon that are not substantially established. So now we get the pervasions. What are substantially established phenomenon? We have non-static phenomenon. So there are three types. There are forms of physical phenomenon, ways of being aware of something, and non-congruent affecting variables like persons. So among the substantially established phenomenon, some are self-sufficiently knowable. These are forms of physical phenomenon and ways of being aware of something. When you cognize them, you don't have to cognize anything else before it. We'll get to that, uh, you know, uh, in a few lectures uh, from now. So you don't have to cognize their parts first before uh, cognizing the whole object. Uh, impute among substan substantially established phenomenon, there are some that are imputedly knowable. That's the non-congruent affecting variables like persons or uh, impermanence, non-staticness. So when we see, for example, a, uh, uh, an object, you see just one moment. So that object, you'd have to say, uh, when you see the object, the object is in motion, the object is moving, but you don't see the motion in one moment. So first you have, so you would have to say, you see the you know you see the object and you see the motion, but you don't ask you know it appears to the consciousness and the person, but you can only ascertain. Ascertain means know with certainty that it's in motion. If you see another moment of it, then you can see that it is actually in motion. Then you would be decisive that it's in motion. So first you would have to see the basis of imputation, so the object in one place, in one moment, and although motion, you know, the non-static phenomenon, the non-affected, non-staticness, which is a non-congruent affecting variable, is an imputation on it, substantially established there, it's only in the second moment that you would see both the object and the motion or the non-staticness, the impermanence of it. So it's the same thing with persons. First we would have to uh, see uh, one moment 
of them, but a person is slightly different. You know, the problem is the way that it's described is that uh, these non-congruent affecting variables are too subtle to for the mind to be able to catch it. You know, decisively, know it decisively in the first moment when you say moment. Moment can be understood in two ways. A moment is either the tiniest, you know, fraction of uh, a time period, or it can be the first phase of something. So I don't know whether in this case it's talking about a tiniest moment or if it's talking about a little bit longer than that. But the first phase, it's too subtle to be able to uh, uh, be certain ascertain it's a person so first you see um, you know the body colored shapes of uh, of a body and the body it's a person but it's only in the second person in the second moment that you're really certain that it's a person so it's like that so substantially established phenomenon According to Sautrantika, Chinamatra, and Svetantrika, some are self-sufficiently knowable, which forms a physical phenomenon and ways of being aware of something, and some are imputedly knowable. That's the non-congruent affecting variables. They affect our cognition, like persons or uh, impermanence, but they're non-congruent with the consciousness and mental factors. They don't share five things in common with them. You know, the focal object, the focal... Um, the, the uh, this is not for Chittamatra, this is for Svetantrika and Satrantrika. Uh, the uh, mental hologram, the dominant condition, which would be the uh, eye sensors, and the time and the slant, meaning that they fit harmoniously together. For Chittamatra, there's another what was set. That slant? slant just means that they fit together in one harmonious uh, way. In other words, you can't have anger and love together in one mm. moment. Um, imputedly established phenomenon. In other words, those that are not established substantially are just not are just static phenomenon. And static phenomenon, there are none that are self-sufficiently knowable. There are only imputedly knowable. So static phenomenon would, uh, if we're talking about uh, Sautrantika and so on, would include uh, space and uh, categories, and for Sautrantika, voidness. Um, but we'll get to the way that Shinamatra and Svetantrika makes an exception for voidnesses. And Vaibhashika wouldn't have imputed the... Vaibhashika we'll get to. I mean, I'm giving the basic presentation and then we'll go through the, each of the oh, yeah. okay. uh, systems. Okay? So, you got this. And the way we'll describe it is in terms of what the Galuk tradition says. The non-Galupas have quite a different... Uh, analysis of uh, cognition. It comes from, it's actually, there are two traditions that uh, you have in uh, Sautrantika and Chittamatra, which then extends into Madhyamaka as well. One is called true aspectarian and false aspectarian. 
and it has to do with uh, whether uh, you know whole objects in non-conceptual cognition or is it only conceptual so true aspectarian we actually see a whole object and uh, in the false aspectarian which is what the non-galupas follow uh, it's only mentally constructed or synthesized in conceptual cognition okay Vibhashika Vibhashika asserts direct cognition so direct cognition is cognition not through the arising of a mental hologram of his involved object but through direct contact between an involved object and a cognitive sensor what would science say? science would say contact of the, of the sensory organ and the well they're saying that the cognition the occurs let's say if we talk about electromagnetic waves or photons mm -hmm. it hits the cognitive sensors of the eyes so that would be the rods and cones of the eyes mm -hmm. and that you have cognition of the object directly from that without a mental hologram appearing now we would not say that uh, you know the, uh, from a western if you do it as terms of a computer mm -hmm then the electromagnetic waves would be like data and what mental activity does is it transforms data into information which then appears as an image on the screen or a sound on the uh, speaker system of the computer so it's similar with the with mental activity it transforms the data of uh, sensory information electromagnetic waves or photons and transforms that into information, a mental hologram yeah. of a synthesizes it into a, uh, uh, a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste or uh, if it's just brain waves, a thought. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's actually multi-layered holograms but for the different parts of a perception but right that's well that. what they say is that the first moment is with sensory cognition and then the next moment is mental cognition so they take into you know it would be another way of describing that actually it's that mental consciousness or the brain mm -hmm. is the main thing mm -hmm. but you have to have that transition of mental consciousness before you get into conceptual cognition, which is mental. So, first moment is uh, um, bare sensory cognition, so non-conceptual. Then the next phase is uh, uh, mental cognition, non-conceptual, bare and mental cognition. According to Sautrantika, then you have a moment of uh, non-determining cognition when it's making the transition to you know it's no longer decisive about it it appears but it's not so decisive as it turns into conceptual cognition and conceptual cognition as you remember is what would fit it into a category and give a name to it a word to it optional to give a word for it we don't 
give words to everything that we see, but uh, we uh, put it into some sort of category. Body, person, these type of uh, things. So the Vaibhashika, to say that we, uh, there's um, no mental hologram, nobody else uh, accepts that in the Buddhist uh, uh, sphere. So, but because of that, there can only be one object cognized in a valid cognition, and apprehended objects can only be explicitly apprehended. So, unlike the other tenet systems, Vaibhashika does not assert implicit apprehension. So, because there's no mental hologram, you can't have a multi-layered mental hologram. You know, there's just the contact of the individual defining characteristic mark of the sensory data. So the wavelength of the electromagnetic wave or something like that. And that's it. And it quite, quite very much fits with a naive idea of how perception works, no? I guess so. You have the, the impression that, <laughs> that you're directly perceiving like uh, the, the, the light as it comes into your eyes. Is directly that you have a direct experience of that. Well, yeah, I mean, it gets into the whole issue of what actually, you know, exists out there. Is it just electromagnetic waves or are there actual objects? This is the whole big issue between the true aspectarian and the false aspectarian. You know, do we only see electromagnetic waves or do we actually see whole objects? that extend over all the sensory data of it and last more than one moment, because we only see one moment at a time. The previous moment is no longer happening when we see the presently happening moment. But the interesting thing is that these schools never knew anything about electromagneticism in the first place. Right, these schools never knew anything about electromagnetic uh, waves or anything like that either, not at all. So it's more a question of whether they, is it only, what was what Well, the way that they explain it is with particles. Particles. Mm -hmm. That there are, according to Vaibhashika, see if I can get this straight, there are uh, particles, eight types of particles. So earth, water, fire, wind, and uh, eye sensor particles, ear sensor, no, smell sensor, and taste, taste sensor, and body sensor, so I guess there's nine. No, it's not sound sensor, that's not it. It's sight sensor, smell, uh, taste, and physical sensation. So there are these eight particles, and whichever, and then you have a conglomerate of them, like a molecule, and whichever of these are dominant makes it into that type of thing. And then there are bigger conglomerations and, you know, it has to get to a certain size when it actually would be perceptible by the eye sensors. Before that, it can only, it's a form of physical phenomenon that it can only be known by the mind. They have that. Sautrantika and sound particles are something which are separate. They're not conglomerates, but sound particles are non-static anyway. There's always a special discussion of sound in uh, these systems. 
Sautrantika rejects that there is such a thing as the four sensor type of particles and just asserts uh, uh, sight, uh, earth, water, fire, and uh, wind is as constituting the matter, and then space sound particles are separate. They're saying that, that the particles are coming into your The eye. particles are coming into the eye. Okay, because the Greeks used to say the opposite. They thought that there was there were some particles coming out of your eye and detecting things and coming back. Well, no, this actually... The way that I'm describing it is more a Western way of looking at it. Actually, they do say that the sense goes, that the consciousness goes out. Like the Greek, uh -huh. Not only the Greeks, the, the Indian system no, say no, as well. They also say that. They also say that the consciousness goes out. Mm -hmm. This is why I was always explaining that uh, uh, if you view perception working that way, then you can live without going crazy like an Indian on a piece of cloth on the floor of, uh, uh, you know, Calcutta Railway Station. Your perception only goes out as far as the end of your piece of cloth. Right, and you sure just don't see the, or when you're on an Indian bus and uh, they have uh, a video, a video bus, and the sound is playing all night long as they repeat the same video over and over again. You know, the, and you say, turn it, you know, turn it off, it's bothering me. The Indian uh, bus driver's reply to that is, well, don't listen to it. Totally opposite to the German mentality. Opposite of the German mentality, oh, German yes. Deal with any disturbance. Right. So that way of looking at perception actually can be very helpful. Yeah. But how that actually works, you know, I mean, consciousness has the subtle energy, uh, as, you know, if we talk about uh, Tantra. Uh, level the subtle the subtle energy is part of that uh, is the other aspect of consciousness so that subtle energy goes out I don't really know from a is there any scientific basis for that I don't think so I don't think so and that's the funny thing even if it were like that if the Indians were dealing with it under the impression that it were working like this it's it's just a fantasy. I mean, this, I mean that, that is just probably conditioning. They, they just know that, you know, you can block whatever you hear from your... Right. No, it is just conceptually. If you believe that, then you... Uh, it's easier not... It's easier to just ignore uh, the sound. Well, there's, there's a basis to this. I mean, still, whether it's sound or, or eye consciousness, there is an interaction of the of the photons coming from that object with my retina yeah and also there is a, a, a lot of layers in the in the in the construction of the hologram at which i can choose to ignore that and which i can choose to filter it out well so yes this is the mental factor of attention what yeah. what uh, how much attention do you pay to each part of uh, the field of perception and many theories of the brain say that it's a fantasy to think that the brain is this big machine processing is actually an ignoring machine like filtering that's the real the real magic of, of, of a brain like it filters out it filters out right and isn't that the problem of autism that exactly. they're not able to filter exactly yeah but is there anything in terms of autistic. energy going from the brain to the retina 
You know, if you talk about the neurons firing, is there anything going from the brain through the neural system to the retina, or is it only one direction that it's going from the retina to the various parts of the brain? Well, of course, you have a certain feedback, no? You have what? You have a certain feedback. A feedback. In the sense that you are looking at something that caught your attention, you are directing your, your, your eye sensors as well. No? So there is some sort of electric impulse, neural impulse that's going from somewhere in the brain to the sensors, the sensors yeah. to the eye sensors. So you can move your eyes, right? Right, you can move your eyes, sure. The ears, only three people can do it, but, <laughs> but uh, the eyes, you can certainly move your eyes. Um, and you can move your body to have different uh, sense of touch. No. So you could say that consciousness riding on that neural energy goes at least from somewhere in the brain out to the sensors. To the not that it goes to the retina, not that it goes out from the retina to the object. You have to move the periscope a little bit. <laughs> right, you have to move the periscope. <laughs> yeah. So it's an extension of that the uh, pan-Indic, I mean, all the Indian schools, not just the Buddhists, uh, say that consciousness goes out to the object. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is the Vadashka. There's no... Uh, because the particles come, you know, hit the, rest, the, uh, the sensors, the sense cells, and there's no mental hologram. That's, all, that's called direct cognition. Uh, you know, not through the intermediary of a mental hologram, and that uh, only one thing can hit the eyes. So if it's a person, just the person, not the basis for imputation of the person, like the body. So the uh, um, there can only be explicit apprehension. In other words, a mental, the thing has to actually be known. You know, hit the eye retina can't be uh, implicit apprehension. How they apprehend no milk in the refrigerator, I have no idea. I would think that the no milk itself, that is a uh, uh, something that hits the retina. Anyway, for them, static phenomenon, partless particles, partless moments, and non-congruent affecting variables such as persons, in other words, everything, is self-sufficiently knowable and substantially existent phenomenon. They say that although persons are imputations on five aggregate factors, nevertheless, it is not since it's not possible to cognize or even know all five aggregates at once, then valid cognition of a person doesn't require cognition of its basis for imputation immediately preceding it. You can just see a person directly, basically. Does that make any sense? I mean, how do we see persons? I mean, everybody else says that first moment you see the basis. And although it's a person established from the side of the basis, the body, and, you know, the mental consciousness, because it's a person, it has to be, have mental activity. 
that you can't really know in that first instance, you know, with certainty that it's a person. Many people, I think, to cognize a person is to cognize the form of the physical phenomenon, person. First. In Western culture. No, but first, let's say you see something walking down the street. First you see a body, and then you know it's a person. Doesn't feel is what like it's it. saying. I think it doesn't feel like it. Well, they say it's, you know, a tiny moment. You know, the first moment. Mm, yeah, but... No, but wasn't your question how... how we could relate to the Vibhashika one if you don't Well, the Vibhashika says that, you know, it doesn't work like that. So this is the, you know, the analysis, you know, what, what you try to think is, that are the Vibhashikas right? Or all the other schools, all the other schools say, including Prasangika, that you'd have to, that you see, you know, a body, you know, it's a body, you know, you know, it's a body. This is true aspectarian. You know it's a body, certain that it's a body, but not certain yet that it's a person, that it takes a time lag, a tiny, tiny time lag. Yeah, the body is not the person. I, I thought that's the problem in all the other schools, that they, that they have to say like this because the body is not the... is neither the body nor the, nor the mind. Well, we'll get to that. The body... The, so, but you can only recognize it on on the basis of them. So then you have to say that it's coming afterwards, a tiny moment. The right. Well, the we'll get to this, but the defining characteristics of the whole body is found on the side of the colored shapes that you see. Mm -hmm. Whereas the defining characteristics of the person is findable on the mental consciousness, not on the colored shapes of the body. Mm -hmm. So I think that is probably responsible for why you have to have this time lag. You just see colored shapes. It's colored shapes that appear, but the true aspectarian says that actually the body appears as well because the defining characteristics of the body are found on the side of the colored shapes of the body. They have to say that, no, no way. It follows. Right, it follows from that. Yeah. But the defining characteristics of the person are not on the side of the body. It could be a dead body. It could be a corpse. So the defining characteristic of the person is on mental activity, on the mental consciousness. You're not cognizing that, but are you seeing a person? The question is, you know, how much of the aggregates do you have to know in order to see a person? And normally, we would never know all the mental, you know, the consciousness or the mental factors. It would be only the body. It would be all, it would be either the visual form of the body or the smell of a body. Let's say for a dog or the sound of a body, you know, when you hear somebody on the telephone, or the, you know, physical texture of a body when you, when you touch one in the dark. Yeah, but then it makes sense again, so then it, it's... Pardon? Like, but then, yeah, but then that makes sense again, then you have to also say that it comes afterwards because neither of them is the person, so, and you have to... Well, neither of them have the, neither of these aspects of a body 
have the defining characteristic of a person. Yeah, and and uh, you have to, uh, um, you can only, what do you say, um, no. implicitly? No, you can only, on, on the basis, uh, let's say you see a body walking, passing by, right. then, then you know you, that the body is not, uh, that then you know that it, there must be consciousness, otherwise it wouldn't walk, exactly. pass by. So and then on this you can infer you infer it so right right before you can only infer on the basis on all the other things that there must be a consciousness and on this you can uh, you say that you see a person you see the person something like that they don't yeah. describe it as a inference but I think mm. that that explains it mm. that would explain it okay because Vaibhashika asserts that nothing has existence established exclusively by being something imputed by conceptual cognition in other words they don't say that they, they you know they for them everything is substantially established there's nothing that is exclusively established you know by conceptual by imputation of conceptual cognition so something just there's nothing has exclusively imputedly established existence then uh, you can't say that uh, they have, they assert anything that's imputedly knowable. For Vaibhashika, you don't actually find that term in the Vaibhashika text. You know, all this stuff about cognition comes from Dharmakirti, Dinaga and Dharmakirti. And they are later than the Vibhasha texts that the Vaibhashikas are based on. It came much earlier. So they don't have this uh, very complete discussion of uh, cognition theory. Okay, that's the Vaibhashikas. Question is, how much do we want to go into Sautrantika now? It's a little bit long. We have uh, 15 minutes left. Well, we can start. Um, so, Trantika asserts that all forms of physical phenomenon, well, like we have here, all forms of physical phenomenon and ways of being aware of something are substantially, uh, are self-sufficiently knowable, whereas um, static phenomenon and non-congruent affecting variables are imputedly knowable. Of those the non-congruent affecting variables, so persons are substantially established and static phenomenon are not substantially uh, established. I mean, this is quite... Uh, You know, how does this fit together? With the refutation of uh, selflessness of a person. That's the uh, important point here. Sautrantika, no, try that again. Vaibhashika only asserts the coarse selflessness of a person. They assert that because uh, um, what they are refuting is that uh, 
a person is static, partless, and can exist independently of a body and mind. In that refutation, it's not stated that they are refuting a static, partless, independently existing, substantially established person. Substantially established person is not there. Why? Because it does exist. Pardon? Because it does exist. I can't hear you with the Because mapping. it does exist. Because it doesn't exist. It does exist for them. It does exist for them? It's no. The ex substantially existent person does exist posted. It, for Vaibhashikas, I thought it exists. No, well, here's your fallacy. Oh. They're refuting the non-Buddhist position. Mm. So the question becomes, do the non-Buddhist positions, primarily Samkhya and Nyaya, assert that the static, partless, independently existing person is substantially existent? It's only if they assert that it's substantially existent that that would be part of what they refute. Right? So now you have to look in these systems of what substantially existent means for them. What is a substantially existent phenomenon? And they talk about that. And if you look in those theories, from the Samkhya point of view, they make this uh, dualism between primal matter and persons. Primal matter is everything other than persons, and they all are made, they all are material. And they are substantially established. So for them, substantially established phenomenon are material phenomenon. And persons are not even consciousness. There's a mind particle type of thing. So they reduce consciousness basically to the brain. Persons are, are non-material, they're immaterial. So persons for them are not substantially established. But, but just because they have a different definition. Because there's a different definition, exactly. Mm -hmm. And for Nyaya, they talk about uh, basic entities. And a person is one of these basic entities. They are substantially established but they don't do anything. You know, they have, they, everything is like, you know, building blocks. So uh, it has to connect to an activity, and activity is another type of thing. And only in connection with activity is anything done. But a person by itself, although it's substantially established, not according to the definition of the Buddhists, substantially established from the Buddhist point of view, even the Vaibhashikas, is that it performs a function. So, persons in the Nyaya system are static, but they don't perform a function by themselves, on their own. Whereas persons in... Uh, not, not persons, whereas Vaibhashika, static phenomenon, are substantially established, but they do perform a function. 
They serve as the basis for cognition of them. So none of these, these two major non-Buddhist systems that assert a static, partless, independently existing self or person assert that it is substantially established in the Buddhist meaning. So remember Shantideva said that if the two sides of a debate don't agree on the definitions of the basic terms, they can't have a debate about it. So that's not an issue. That's not being refuted with coarse subtleness of a person. So if you have refuted the coarse subtleness of a person, then what you are left with, the, the coarse selflessness of a person, then what you are left with is that the person is substantially established in the Buddhist sense. It's non-static. Do you follow that? Substantially established means that it performs a function. It's non-static in the Buddhist way. So, if you assert a static self, it can't possibly be substantially established in the Buddhist way of defining it. And the non-Buddhist schools don't define it as performing a function. Also in Sankhya school, yeah, they also wouldn't say that it performs a function. Sankhya school says it doesn't perform a function. Mm -hmm. It's immaterial. Mm. Body performs a function. The self just connects into the body, but what you want to do is disconnect it, and then it's you know. And consciousness performs a function, but the person Pardon? doesn't. Also, consciousness performs a function for something. Consciousness performs that performs the function of knowing things. Mm. And but the person doesn't. Okay. Person doesn't. Person Sankhya has the quality of consciousness, but it doesn't cognize anything. Mm -hmm. As Nyaya says, the person doesn't have the quality of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So, because of that, then Sautrantika asserts the subtle selflessness of a person. So, what is being negated in the subtle selflessness of a person by Sautrantika? that the person is a self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent person. Substantially established, self-sufficiently knowable. What's being refuted? What's being refuted, what's being refuted is the whole thing that it is a substantially, that it is a self-sufficiently knowable, substantially established phenomenon. So what you're left over with is that it's an imputedly knowable, substantially established phenomenon. That's what you know when you have, that's what you're left with when you've refuted the subtle selflessness. So what is not being refuted is a substantially established existence. This is what Prasangika comes in and does. 
That's why the Sanghikas say that it's only a coarse understanding when you understand that there's no such thing as a self-sufficiently knowable, substantially established self. And what you're left over with after that is an imputedly knowable, substantially established self. And then for the subtle selfishness and prasangikas, you refute that it's substantially established. Because substantially established is the same as established from something on its side, on its own side. So Satanta Ganji Tamatra stay in this corner. In this the, they quadrant. stay in the corner of if you have understood subtle selflessness, which is sufficient for attaining liberation, according to Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrika, mm -hmm. then what you've understood is that the self is a substantially established, imputedly knowable phenomenon, because they assert that all phenomena are established by some, I mean, all non Static phenomena are substantially established. Mm -hmm. And then for Svatantrika, you would have, you would understand that they are not established exclusively by the power of the defining characteristic mark on their own side, but and they are not established exclusively by what can be imputed by mental labeling of, of conceptual cognition. That's the Prasangika extreme. The other extreme is the Sautrantika extreme, but by a combination of the two, individual defining characteristic and mental labeling. But for liberation, all you need to know is that the person is still substantially established, but not imputedly knowable. But, I'm sorry, but imputedly knowable, not self-sufficiently knowable. Okay? Maybe that's enough. <laughs> so you wrote persons there? But actually this refers... Persons or... Vaibhashkas would... would the persons on the other quadrant? No, the Vaibhashikas say that persons are no, the Vaibhashikas would not say that a persons are imputedly knowable. Vaibhashikas would say that persons are self-sufficiently knowable. Yeah, this is uh, Trantika and Chittamatra and Svatantrika would say that persons are yeah. non, are imputedly knowable. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Sautrantika, by Bashka, I'm sorry, would say that static phenomena are also self-sufficiently knowable. For Vaibhashika, categories are non-congruent affecting variables. They don't consider them static. And even selflessness Course selflessness is a non-affecting variable, uh, non-congruent affecting variable. The only static phenomenon that they accept is space, spaces, and the um, oh, I never remember the names of these. The non, the analytical stopping and the non-analytical stoppings. Mm -hmm. 
uh, non-analytical stopping is uh, when you uh, there are two choices and you take one choice. So that other choice could never happen. So there's no it's static that will never change. I went to the right. I didn't go to the left. So that is a non-analytical stopping and the analytical stopping is through an understanding of selflessness. Those are the only static phenomenon in Vaibhashika. So they have quite a different, you know, understanding of how perception works. But even their partless particles are non-static, they're changing. They're in motion, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. So we'll uh, end with a dedication. Whatever positive force, whatever understanding has come from this, may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of us all. <laughs>